Kathleen, let's go ahead and read our passage starting verse 12 of chapter 12. And I'm supposed to do the clicker here. There we go. Uh, the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and that had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that we are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. Let's go ahead and pray for a minute. God, thank you so much for this, this uh, short vignette in uh, Jesus' life. And just the symbolism that is rich here, the meaning behind it, just the incredible uh, revealing that this provides. God, we are so grateful for our time together. We're grateful for times of family. We do pray for Robert collectively, just so you be with him and German as, as, they, as they sort through their grief. And, and others in, in the assembly here uh, that, you know, either times of great joy or, or times of grief or times of sorrow or times of pain. God, we're all together and we pray that you'd help us to take care of one another and that you would help us to find great consolation in the things that we'll read today and great encouragement to stay faithful and to really give you our hearts in Christ's name. Amen. So this is, uh, we're picking out a story right in the middle of John and uh, it, it's never good just to jump in the middle of something without context. So uh, what, what we have is uh, if and we'll just do a really quick pass here. Uh, chapter 11 of John begins with the story of Lazarus. And so it spends the bulk of chapter 11 talking about um, raising, Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Uh, now in verse 19 of, of that passage, it does say that many, many people had come to be with Mary and Martha and to console them. So, so there, were, there were many present. It wasn't just a, a handful of people at the raising of Lazarus. And so right after that, there's the Pharisees uh, consulting, or, or consulting with the, the chief priests on, on what they were going to do. Now, you would think that the religious leaders would look at this and say, it's this incredible act of God. We need to pay attention to this man and learn from him. No, that wasn't their idea at all. They had a very tenuous relationship with the Romans, and the Romans would allow them to practice their religion as long as they kept the peace. Everything was cool. And so you had Jesus, in essence, kind of creating a bit of a stir in the Jewish community. And so the Pharisees were very concerned about the notoriety that he was getting, and that as soon as the Romans would start to look at this and perhaps look at this as an insurrection, that they would put the kibosh on it and say, that's it, you're done. No more practicing Judaism. You guys that are leading and the affluence that gives you, the power that gives you, we're nullifying your authority. Uh, and they would step in and take control. So the Pharisees had, had a lot at stake to keep Jesus and his, his followers suppressed. So uh, at this point, they had a plot to kill him. 
And so because of that, Jesus couldn't walk around openly. He went to, uh, uh, out into the region of the wilderness to a town called Ephraim and stayed there with his disciples. But a short time later, the Passover was coming. And so many went up from the country to Jerusalem, including those at Bethany, which was uh, where Lazarus was raised. That was only a, a, a couple miles away from Jerusalem. So many of those people went up to, to Jerusalem, including those that had witnessed Lazarus uh, being raised. And so they continued to talk about what they saw with Lazarus and convincing more and more people that Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. So there were many people looking there at the feast for Jesus himself. So six days later, um, uh, Jesus came to Bethany, or I'm sorry, not, this was six days before the Passover feast, Jesus came to Bethany. So uh, what you would consider, we think of the Sabbath as being Saturday. No, the Sabbath actually starts on Friday evening at sunset. And so six days before, if you consider Friday being zero day, six days before would have been the, uh, that Saturday night uh, Jesus came into Bethany. So after, after the, uh, the Passover was over, the previous Passover, uh, I'm sorry, after the Sabbath was over, the one previous to Passover, he would have arrived, they would have had a big dinner uh, together, and then the next day is when, uh, being Sunday, is when he left then for Jerusalem. Um, and then uh, that, that large crowd, sorry singers, I'm throwing your stuff around here. There we go. Uh, the next day, the large crowd that had come heard that he was coming uh, to Jerusalem. So they probably went towards Bethany and just lined the street going towards Bethany. And then, uh, and I already referred to this, that, that this crowd was there. So, so really the word crowd here in verses 17 and 18 refer to two crowds. One is the, the, the witnesses, and then the second crowd, even larger crowd, is those who had heard. So you can go back and read our text, and you can see that, so that many people were convinced and went out. And so that's the context here, that um, John doesn't provide the detail that the other Gospels do in this story. This is one of the very few stories that's written in, in all four of the Gospels. You might know that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are considered synoptic Gospels. They're kind of eyewitness, blow by blow, and, and uh, John is really separate. He follows a different outline. So when things overlap, and there are stories in all, all four of the Gospels, it's interesting to compare and contrast. And what I just showed you uh, is really that John is really focusing on the, the situation around the raising of Lazarus. And that, that incredible event of raising Lazarus from the dead, of overcoming death itself, really set the tone for what's happening in this entry. Now, in your Bibles, it, it, it labels this section what? It says the triumphal entry, right? Okay, now, nowhere in our text does it say, and Jesus came to Jerusalem in a triumphal entry. Uh, that's not in there at all. This is a label that the, the publishers have, 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 you know, traditionally put on top of this section. You know, that, that label wasn't in John's original writing, neither were the verse numbers or the chapters, by the way. Um, but so this is what we've come to call this. Well, what does it mean to have a triumphal entry? Well, a triumphal entry is when a conqueror comes to the city and has this incredible parade. 
You might think it's, uh, it's like the most magnificent world championship ticker, uh, ticker tape parade down the middle of Manhattan or something like that, but it, it's even grander than that. It's incredible. Uh, historians say that anyone living during that time, they may have encountered this once in their lifetime, possibly twice. It was that rare. And so it was just a, a triumphal entry was just phenomenal. It is the conquering army returning with the spoils from a distant land. And so the, the, the first people to come into the city in that procession would be the leaders of the army. And another thing that, that, that would be happening is there would be incense and there would be loud noises and, and shouting. So you just think the sight and the smell and the sounds and everything about this was just way over the top. So here comes the leaders of the army uh, leading the parade off. And then behind them would be just an incredible, spectacular display uh, on carts of the spoils, maybe exotic animals from that distant land, maybe fruits or, or maybe the harvest, just the bounty saying, okay, we went, we conquered, we gathered the spoils, here they are. So right behind the leaders of the army come the spoils, and then comes the vanquished army in chains. And so this, this whole army, they're parading before Jerusalem or, or, or the, the crowds as, as they're coming into the city. And of course, everybody's just yelling at them and just shouting at them, just calling them down and, and just, you know, deriding that army. And then uh, right behind his army comes the vanquished ruler. And of course, they would even ex ex uh, just completely magnify their derision of this man. And so the, the crowd is in a frenzy at this point. Then comes the senators, the Roman senators, and all of their pomp, their gowns, you know, just uh, the, the, the royal senators walking down. And then behind them comes the main event. Here comes a chariot with the most magnificent white war horses side by side, four of them side by side, prancing down the road with a majestic golden chariot in tow. And on that chariot is the victor, the general of the army, standing there in all his regal glory, following these magnificent horses down the aisle, or down the, down the road, Shout, shouts coming from all sides. And then right behind him, on a little cart, is a little slave boy holding up the crown and his job was to whisper to the victor, remember, you are only mortal. Remember, you are only mortal. Remember, you are only mortal. Because the victor, he was, he was not a deity in the Roman society. He wasn't Caesar. He wasn't, he was, he was a leader of the army. And this young slave boy was meant to pull him down a notch, you know, to say, with all these people yelling glories to me and, and, and just, you know, shouting their allegiance to me and their praises to me, you know, I better not think too much of myself. Um, that was the whole purpose of that. And then finally, behind uh, the victor would be his sons or other dignitaries. So that's a triumphal procession. Now, what do we see in the procession of Jesus? Well, we don't see that necessarily, do we? 
So, but why do we call it triumphal? Well, there's, there's, there's other reasons behind it. And there's three symbolisms we're going to look at here. Uh, you might think that a lot of these things happen by accident, but nothing in this story happened by accident. For instance, the palm branches. You might have thought, well, they wanted to, you know, have something to wave at Jesus. They didn't have ticker tape back then, so what would they use? Oh, uh, hey, there's a palm branch. Grab them. You know, uh, no, that wasn't it at all. Remember uh, a few uh, sermons back, I talked about the, the Maccabean uh, revolt in AD 160, and remember I talked about the guy called the Hammer, you know, and that he brought victory over uh, a solution uh, army that had come in and uh, had occupied uh, the temple and actually uh, devastated the temple, poured uh, uh, pig's blood on the temple and all of that. And so this revolt led by the Maccabees uh, uh, just vanquished then, and then there was a rededication of the temple in about AD 160. And, and from that comes the practice of what, what's known today as Hanukkah. Uh, and, and, uh, and so Hanukkah was not one of the feasts um, talked about in the Old Testament. It was a very recent event. And what they, what they celebrated as the Maccabeans came back into the city was uh, they celebrated with palm branches. So palm branches became known as a symbol of the Jewish nation, a symbol of Jewish uprising. When you waved a palm branch, it was hearkening back to the Maccabean re uh, revolt and saying, we're gonna, we're gonna rise again, we're coming back. We're, we have these Romans that are oppressing us now, but in, in waving a palm branch, you were saying, I'm part of the insurrection. Okay, so think about that for a second. In fact, a little while later, uh, uh, displaying a palm branch uh, became uh, a crime in the Roman society, saying, you know, you're, you're trying to create an insurrection, you're trying to create uh, a problem here. Um, and so they were waving palm branches for a reason, saying, we're ready for revolt. We are ready for an insurrection. We're, we're ready to take down the Romans. And then they're quoting from Psalm 18, when they say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And in, uh, in Psalm 118, starting verse 25, here's what we have. It says, save us, we pray, O Lord, and save us. The word Hosanna is, is really just a transliteration of the Hebrew there. When you say the word save us in Hebrew, it comes out as Hosanna. So Hosanna uh, you know, praising Hosanna. We pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. So you look at this phrase, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, as, as just a general blessing. You know, you could say, and, and really, the in the name of the Lord really modifies blessing. So it, it's as if you're saying, blessed in the name of the Lord is he who comes. So someone coming to Jerusalem but in fact, it had taken a reverse meaning uh, in, this, in, the, in the time before Jesus that says that no, it's blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This was actually a messianic uh, praise. This is blessed is the name of the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And, and they, they said even the king of Israel. So they, they even doubled down on that. They didn't leave it as nebulous. They said, yeah, we're talking about our king. 
Blessed is the one who comes in the name of our Lord, the King. And this is what they're shouting to Jesus. So that wasn't by chance, was it? This was a, a, a psalm of rich meaning and palm trees with rich meaning. So they are saying, here's our king. He's going to lead us into war. Come on, Jesus. We're ready. So how does Jesus respond to this? Well, believe it or not, you know, how, when's the last time you had a really good quiet time out of Zechariah? You know, how many of you can tell me with confidence that you even knew that Zechariah was in the Bible? All right? Okay, got a handful. Is that a trick question, Zechariah? Oh, okay. But Jesus takes this, old, this obscure passage, but one that would be incredibly familiar to the Jews, and says, that's my calling card. I will play this out. I will reenact this. And this will tell you who I am. So let's look at the, the passage in John. It's out of Zechariah 9.9. And we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that here in a second. It says, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. You can look in the other accounts here. And, and it, it says that Jesus told his disciples where to find the colt. Here, John just kind of bypasses all that, and he shortens it down and says, Jesus went and found a colt. So Jesus did this deliberately. It wasn't just, hey, I need something to ride. My feet are tired. Hey, oh, hey, look there. Let's borrow that. Uh, he did this for a meaning so that he could fulfill this passage. Again, it's out of uh, Zephaniah. And if we think, if we look at, I'm sorry, Zechariah. Um, confusing you, aren't I? Uh, Zechariah 9, uh, verse 9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughters of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughters of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, or a colt, the foal of a donkey. Well, it doesn't say fear not at the beginning of that, um, and none of the Hebrews says that, but it does say fear not in Isaiah 40, so they may have been invoking that. Um, in fact, it's not uncommon in the New Testament to cite the Old Testament and do kind of a mashup of a few different verses. We might look at that and say, oh, the Bible's inconsistent. Look, it, it cites it here, but it doesn't say that back in the Old Testament. This was common practice. They knew the Bible so well that they were able to mash up related verses and tie them together. And it would have been perfectly okay for them to cite uh, this passage in this matter. So Isaiah 40, we have, uh, we have fear not there, a little lower. And, and then we have that connection. It was good on the slides when I sent them to Crystal. Um, so, uh, so, so we have that replacement. But we also have, in the rest of Zechariah, a, a tie from riding in on the foal of a donkey to what lies after that. The Jews knew the Bible so well that they would look at a passage and we would look at a, just a fleeting phrase from a passion and say, oh, yeah, that's nice. But what would come, be brought to bear in the Jews' mind was everything, the whole context of that would come into play. It's like if we were to say the Statue of Liberty, oh, yeah, that's a really neat uh, copper st statue and she's holding this up and she stands in the harbor of Manhattan. 
No, what she means to us is liberty, is bring me your huddled masses, you know, all of that. Uh, uh, you know, welcoming the, the foreigner, uh, you know, and, and Ellis Island, and all that stuff just comes crashing through our minds when we see that symbol of the Statue of Liberty. So it's the same way when, when the Jews would see a phrase from the Bible, all of the context would be brought to bear. So in this context, we have Zechariah 9. Let me catch up with you here. All that animation. Uh, come on. There we go. Um, Zechariah 9, 9 is what Jesus is acting out. But in acting that out and invoking that passage, he automatically invokes the rest of Zechariah 9. I will cut off the chariots from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And as for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Wow, what an amazing passage. Jesus is saying, yes, I am your king. Because he invokes Zechariah 9.9, he says, yeah, you're calling me your king. I accept that title. But let me tell you what kind of king I will be. I'll accept the inference, but I won't accept the assumptions that you're carrying. So what we're going to do is, is we're going to take this passage, and, and, and really for the rest of the sermon, we're just going to look at, 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 at what this passage implies. We'll break it into these three sections here. So if we look at the, 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 the first one, the humble king brings the end of war. I will cut off, from, cut off the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off. Jesus is saying, not only am I not going to lead you against the Romans to overthrow them, I am going to end all war. And when we look at the way that Christianity uh, proceeded from there, after his resurrection and after the church began and after the influence of Christianity started throughout, we look at and we see as Christians, we really understand that the war is over, the victory has been won. Are there injustices throughout the land of the world? Yes, just like the Romans were of that time. But the true war, the war against death, the war against Satan, has been won decisively. Get this passage in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, verse 54. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and mortals put on immortality. Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. So let that sink in a little bit. Jesus came to put an end to war. Our war is over. Yeah, we still have to put on the full armor, read Ephesians 6 as it talks about, but the, the victory is assured. The victory has already been won. 
You might even consider this just a mop-up exercise. I don't know, something like that. It's, it's decisively won at the death of Christ, at the cross and the resurrection. That power has nullified the power of death. It has nullified the power of sin. If we go on from here, uh, and it was interesting uh, in the communion, uh, you know, referring back to, to Romans 8 and just the power that is described there. In Romans 8, starting verse 7 or 37, it says, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, or rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate us from God. Nothing can take us away. The victory is assured. We, we had this, this man riding in a, a four-horse chariot, incredible splendor. That was the conqueror. That was the victor. Paul says we're more than conquerors. We're more than that. And we don't have the little kid behind us saying, you're only mortal. You're only mortal. We are God's children. We are, we are royalty. We are immortal. Our souls live forever. We can, we can revel in the fact that God has made us more than conquerors. Jesus has put war to an end. 1 John 5, verse 4, it says, For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Little reference in the bottom there to Hebrews 11, 1. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for, being convinced of what we do not see. So how's your faith this morning? Is it assured? Is it convinced? You know, we treat the word faith in our society kind of lightly, loosely. Well, I've, I, I have faith that this is going to work out. That kind of means, I hope it's going to work out. You know, it, it, but, but faith in the Bible is an absolute conviction. I'm staking my whole life on this. I am putting, I am all in because I'm convinced this is right. I don't know how much study you've done or soul-searching you've done or really just the hard work you've done into developing your faith. I think sometimes we, we grow to an acceptable status quo in our faith, right? But what are some things that tell us maybe our status quo is too, too low? I hear a lot of people talking about worrying. I would like to posit to you that if you're worried about something, it probably means that your faith is too low, is, is too little, is too weak. That maybe instead of that worry, that you put your energy into learning how to trust God deeper, how to be more and more and more convinced of his promises, so that you can get yourself emotionally to the point that you can say, God is in control. Yeah, I care how things happen. I hope that things work out okay. But God's in control. One way or the other, it's going to work. The Bible says, all things work for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. If you don't believe that, your faith is too little. You may be a, quote, faithful member of the Hampton Roads Church. 
but the symptoms that you're, you're showing in your lives shows that your faith is weak. But First John here says, this is a victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Pay attention to your faith. Help it to grow. Put the hard work in. Have the conversations. Write the journal entries. Grapple over it. Go back to Proverbs 2. Cry out for insight. Raise your voice for understanding. Seek it like silver. Search for it as for hidden treasure. Then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find knowledge of God. It's Proverbs 2, 1 through 5. That says it's hard work and you've got to grapple. If the word that you're listening to or you're reading is Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights, it may be a quick snatch through the week here and there. Uh-uh. You know, your faith comes from the hearing the word of God and reading the word of God. Let's go after our faith. That's what gives us the victory. So point number two, the humble king brings peace on earth. And again, this is, this is out of uh, uh, Zechariah 9, verses 10 and 11. And he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Basically, you know, they're talking here possibly about the Euphrates, but it's just basically saying the entire earth, he's going to bring peace. Even at the beginning of Jesus' life, this verse from Isaiah, 500 years or so before the time of Christ was invoked, it says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, the government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. At Jesus' birth, this was invoked. And then for us, as we think about our lives, and what does peace mean for us? What does the Prince of Peace bring to us? I think Ephesians 2 is a great commentary. There are so many throughout the Bible, and obviously I, you know, I had to make decisions on how do I pare this down to only a few. You might think, well, yeah, you got more than enough in here, pal. But uh, um, yeah, there's so much there. In Ephesians 2, I'll, I'll look at verse 14 and, and 17 and 18. For he is our peace, referring to Jesus, the one who made both groups, he's, and he's talking about Gentile and Jew, basically saying everybody at that point. There were Jews, and then there were the rest of the world. Making the two groups into one, and he destroyed the dividing wall or the middle wall of partition. Other translations say the dividing wall of hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near, so that through him we might both have access in one spirit to the Father. We see a lot of, of racial uh, divide in our country, in our culture around us. And we see it, it, it really on the rise recently, haven't we? We, we? we see a lot of division. But Jesus said he brings peace. He is the Prince of Peace. And Paul says here in Ephesians, he says that he has made both groups, not just black, white, all other uh, races, one, and brought them in, and it says, broken down the dividing wall of hostility so that we could have true peace, not just a ten tentative, tenuous peace, not just, okay, things are kind of at a boil under the surface, and any little prick, you know, things are going to overflow. That's, that's not peace. Peace is from the heart. Peace is I walk in here and I look at my brothers and sisters in Christ, regardless of race, 
and I say, they are family. That can only happen as this passage ends out. Uh, we have access by one spirit, spirit to the Father. You might recall the, a fruit of the Spirit in, in uh, Galatians 5.22 is peace, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Against such thing there is no law. This is a spiritual matter. It's not going to be solved by our government. It's not going to be solved by, by different programs out there. God bless them. I hope they do well. But true reconciliation is going to be a spiritual matter. And church, it's up to you. The third point coming out of our verse in Zechariah. Also for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Jesus talks about the blood of the covenant. The blood of the covenant that we consumed a little while ago in the communion, right? That reminded us of our Savior, reminded us of the covenant that God has with us. There's a really interesting story at the beginning of Luke in Luke 4, where Jesus starts his ministry, and everybody speaks well of, of him. And he goes into the synagogue, and the scroll of Isaiah was handed to him, and everybody's eyes was on him. And he had a choice. He said, I need to pick out my marquee passage. This is a passage that at the beginning of my ministry is going to show you who I am. You know, companies might call this a mission statement. Um, I'm going to display for you, this is what I'm all about in unveiling my ministry. So he goes to Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, and he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So it's not just good enough for Jesus to end war. Uh, it's, it's, it's not good enough just for him to, to, to proclaim peace when inside we're slaves, when inside we're captives. We, we sang the song right before the, the sermon, Captives Came, Zion. You know, the captives, uh, you know, Israel had a whole history, didn't they, uh, about 500 B.C. of captivity in Babylon. Captivity was something that, that really they felt deeply. But we feel it deeply in our sin. In Romans 5, starting verse 6, it says, While we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So this passage could overlay exactly on what Jesus, the statement Jesus made. Because it's more specific. There it said the blood of the covenant. Jesus didn't tell them, that's my blood. But why was he going to Jerusalem? Scripture says he resolutely set his face to Jerusalem, towards Jerusalem. He was going to Jerusalem to die. So when he was invoking this passage, the blood of my covenant, he was talking about his own blood. Nobody else understood that but him. He said, in coming in, riding on a colt, I am showing you that a new covenant in my blood will be put into place. And so the passage a little later says his disciples, after his, after his glorification, they understood it. Of course, they couldn't understand it at this time because he hadn't died. But when he died and was raised and the new covenant was put in place, 
They went, oh, that's what he was doing. That's what he was saying. So the humble king brings the end of war, peace on earth, freedom from sin, just by riding a donkey into Jerusalem. Jesus endorsed all three of these as his agenda. There is a triumphal entry that's talked about in scripture. In 2 Corinthians 2, it says, thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. And remember the incense that I talked about earlier? And through us spreads a fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. He says, that's our lives. Paul is saying, we are in triumphal procession. We are in that glorious procession. Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. Now, maybe you don't feel that. Okay, it could be a matter of faith. It could be you just had a really hard week. You're hard, it's hard to feel victory and glorious and, you know, with some of the stuff that's gone on. You have to dig down a little bit deeper, but that's okay. There's, there's actually a tension in our lives, in our existence as Christian, between this, a triumphal procession that we have experienced, and one that is yet to come. Because in Titus 2, it says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. All of Jesus' agenda and coming into Jerusalem and fulfilling his promise through Passover and his, his, uh, his death and, and resurrection. It's all been made true to bring salvation for all people. It trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. We've been given the power to do so. He's, been set, he's set us free, set us free from the bondage of sin. Romans 6 talks about that. So that we can live this way. But then it says, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of our Lord, our great, uh, the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. We're waiting for the glory of Jesus to come in in triumphal procession once for all, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So in conclusion, the crowd chose Jesus as his king, and they were ready for battle. Don't associate this crowd with the one a little bit later who said, crucify him. A lot of times we, for effect, will say, well, this crowd was saying this, and a couple days later, uh-uh, probably a different crowd. They were ready to go to die for Jesus. They were all in at this point. Jesus accepted the title by invoking that Zechariah 9.9, he said, yes, I am your king, but not the preconception. The humble king took on bigger targets than Rome. He took on death, hostility, sin. And through his blood, he gave us a victory and extends it to the world through us. And so now we live faithfully, zealously, as Titus 2 said, with gratitude, as we await the final triumph, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of, our of the glory in our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Again, we live in that tension. We have received glory. We have victory. We have been part of a triumphal procession. There's one that's coming. Church, let's be faithful. Let's give our hearts and, and uh, hasten that day. Amen.